0: My name is Adam Martin. I am the founder of F5 Project. I'm a five-time felon and I know what it feels like to be released from jail or a treatment center or a detox or a homeless shelter into nothing. And so the idea was like, could we do a better job by providing services in an F5 fa- fashion, which was, the function key on a keyboard, which was like refresh. So like every time we met someone, what would it look like if we treated them like none of that existed? So F5 Project is a nonprofit
1: organization. We help people who have uh, addiction issues, homelessness, mental health,
0: and ultimately try and give them a chance to change. I had seen some trends happening with peer support where people with like real lived experience, they were going back to where they came from and they were helping people out of those situations. There's no better way to get over the stuff that happened to you in your past than to go and help people who are currently experiencing it. All right. Cody.
1: All right. Well, thank you everyone for having me here. As Adam said, my name is Cody and I am an alcoholic. Hey, uh, just so you know, just kind of, I always give qualifiers whenever I'm speaking. So you know that I'm doing the deal as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've been sober since the 30th of January, 2005. Uh, I have a home group. Uh, the Plains Group. I have a sponsor. His name's Tom H. Uh, He lives up in Grand Forks. My sponsor has a sponsor. My sponsor's sponsor has a sponsor. I know him. So on and so forth, which when you get into my story, why sponsorship is so important, I'll explain that. Uh, I don't speak for any institution, AA or anything. So when I'm up here talking, it is my experience it's my story it's what i've done so don't think that you know because i've heard some really interesting speakers before where it's like well maybe not so much what you have i want you know but so i just want to throw that out there so don't kind of don't want that anything i say to accidentally paint aa with a negative brush Um, and yeah and so i'm a drunk there's no denying the fact that i am an alcoholic uh if you look at my family tree, uh, if I was not born an alcoholic, I would have been the weird one in my family, because the whole tree is just nothing but drunks or raging codependence, the whole tree pretty much all the way down. Uh, you know, I've come from a long lineage, I guess, for lack of a better term of males, especially the males in my family, who are all drunks. My dad's been sober a long time. All of his brothers were alcoholics. Some got sober, some didn't. I, I had a brother who was, you know, flipped to the mom's side. My mom isn't, but her dad, my grandpa was, all of his siblings, his parents, so my great grandparents, just, it's everywhere. Um, when I say that's a, that's can be important, it cannot be important because I've also met people in this program who come from families where there's no one or they're just like this anomaly of alcoholism that sprouts. So uh, I knew from an early age that I was off. Uh, What I mean by that is I never felt like I synced in or meshed in with the universe. Like just life itself. If I don't have a program of recovery in my life or booze in my system, Existence just hurts, like everything feels off, like, because my thought, how my brain works is uh, while I'm talking with you, I'm also thinking about what I should have just said, because clearly what I said was wrong. Uh, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and then what I'm going to say after that, thinking about what I was saying to that person 10 minutes ago that I should have said differently. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about what's going on yesterday, what I'm going to do tomorrow how I'm judging you at the same time. You're judging me. How clearly at the exact same moment in time, I know that I'm worse than you and better than you at the same moment in time. And everything I just laid out for you goes through my head in about a second, maybe two seconds, if it's a slow day. Uh, So my brain without booze or a program of recovery is a very dangerous badlands sort of hellscape. Uh, When I discovered booze and I took that first drink, it calmed that down. All of a sudden I just synced in with the universe. The tracking was right. Everything was right. I felt that one with everyone around me. It was great. You know, it was, it was truly magical, you know? And the problem is though, for me, when i start drinking usually around the third drink sometimes it can happen right away sometimes it's a little later but a good rough average so around the third drink i physically crave alcohol like i physically need alcohol uh, at the same level that i need a breath of oxygen uh, the best way i can describe it is if you've ever been swimming and you're underwater for like that one or two seconds too long and you get that like primal urge to get air and you have to break the surface to get air and when you do you break through and you take that first deep breath of air that's what i feel when alcohol has started reacting to my system that same primal craving for booze is that same level as the need for oxygen and that release that i get when i get it is that same level of that wonderful life, inhaling breath, really. The problem is, is I just get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier because it's a craving that can never, it's never satisfied by taking more, but it always tells me that more will satisfy it. You know, I'm the type of first, even to this day, I'm the type of person, you know, let's say I'm reading a bottle of Tylenol and it says take two every four to six hours my brain inverts those numbers and goes, I should take four to six every two hours, Mm -hmm. just because if this does the X, then clearly more in a shorter time period will do something else. And obviously that's what I need. So I found booze. Oh, was I 16 when I drank for the first time. And I mean, before that, to get out of myself, I mean, seventh grade art class that was at Agassiz at the time. You know, I was a kid in the corner in art class, huffing glue because I realized, oh, this makes me feel better, you know? Uh, So booze is my main problem. I identify as an alcoholic, but uh, as we like to say, I can use anything alcoholically, whether it's uh, relationships, money, job, you name anything that makes me feel good, uh, I'll find a way to manipulate it, use it to get out of myself. So I drank from when I was yeah sixteen to twenty three um, It was hard for me as a kid when I was still living at home to drink because I grew up in a house that was uh, as I said my dad has he hasn't drank since before I was born. Um, and what's cool is besides the fact that this treatment center is started by people that I know and I care about greatly. The name of this place, the Ridge, my dad grew up in the golden Ridge neighborhood, just literally just down. If you just go down seventh, just before the the Cooley or whatever, right there on seventh was his house. He grew up in, and at that time, it was the absolute wrong tide of town to grow up on. It was a very low class blue collar sort of world that he grew up in. And that's sort of the environment that I grew up in where it's just, there was no talking about feelings or how's your day or things like that. It was, you do what you need to do. If you don't, the one acceptable emotion, anger is gonna come out. uh, So you better get your stuff done that you need to get done. So growing up with that, I didn't have a lot of opportunities because my dad told me at a very early age He goes, if you're ever stupid enough to get caught, thrown into jail, don't call me because I will work with the police to make sure that you stay in jail longer. Like, that's the environment I grew up in. Like, it was very clear that if I ever got caught or in trouble, he would make it his mission to make it even worse for me. So finally, I moved out. It was great. You know, I was free. Uh, I could drink. Uh, I was uh, going to NDSU. Uh, I hit out. In college for a really long time, uh, just because it's a great way to avoid the real world. Uh, I decided in 2003 that clearly those people around me that I was drinking with they were the problem so I needed to do a geographical, and for me I do nothing halfway. If I do anything it's it's all in 100% doing it all the way. So. 2003, I moved to Spain for three months, and it was scary how easy it was to go to the financial aid office at NDSU, and just be like, "I need money," and they're like, "Okay," and all of a sudden, just poof, student loans found wound up in my bank account, and yeah, I drank, I just burned through so much money just drinking because I discovered that no matter where I go, I'm there, and I'm the problem. That is a Bitch to discover when you're 21 years old that it doesn't matter who you're around so kept drinking my last year of drinking every time I went out yeah every time I went out my last year of drinking I think maybe once maybe uh, it was blackout like it wasn't a matter of if I was going to blackout it became a game of let's see how we can push the blackout later into the night because uh, it wasn't uncommon to enter the world of blackout around 9 p.m. and wake up the next morning somewhere. You know, uh, always enjoyed, I don't wanna say enjoyed, found it interesting of waking up out of a blackout and playing the game of where the hell's my car this morning. Uh, Kinda hoped it wouldn't be in my garage in my apartment because that means that I drove just annihilatedly drunk, but it wound up there a lot of the times, trying to piece together what I did the night before, you know, and then until finally in January of five, you know, I just turned 23 things like my eyes, when I would look in the mirror, my eyes were starting to not look white anymore. There was sort of funky yellowish grayish thing going on. Uh, I was popping Pepto-Bismol like Tic Tacs because my insides just from the amount of booze I was putting in were just, I could just feel wrecked on the inside. So. Pepto-Bismol was a regular Uh, end of the January 05. I was like, you know, clearly, again, even though I hadn't learned my lesson, it's got to be the people I'm around. So I'm like, you know, maybe I just need to get out of town for the weekend, go down to the cities. My buddy lived down and his girlfriend, now wife, lived down there. Drink around them. That'll somehow be different. The last drink I ever remember drinking, I'm sure it wasn't my last, but the last one I ever remember drinking was served in a fishbowl at some bar in downtown Minneapolis usually that's designed for a group of people that was just mine and I wasn't sharing and it was finally like I was just happy that they gave me a drink that was the appropriate size and that's when I entered the blackout for the evening I came to the next morning floor my buddy's apartment i couldn't walk because i was so dehydrated my legs were cramped up so i couldn't move my legs so i army crawled down the hallway to the bathroom puked up blood Uh, my knuckles were just i punched something or someone or someone that i don't know but my knuckles were all beat up and crusted with blood and scraped so something happened Uh, and i just knew that something had to change you know like if i just the big book in AA describes them as Kind of moments of clarity or i just knew very clearly that okay you can keep doing what you're doing and you will either kill yourself or someone else like it's just it's the odds were such the amount of dumb stuff that i was doing the driving drunk all that stuff uh, it was just a matter of time until i someone got severely hurt or and my thought process was or you could just go to your old man and ask him for help So driving back far, I went to my parents' house and I just asked my dad, when did you know you had a problem drinking? He paused for a moment. He thought about it and he goes, well, you got to ask yourself this question. When you take a drink of alcohol, do you know what's going to happen? Yes or no? And when I drink, I don't know what's going to happen. I have since been around non-alcoholic people who, and this blows my mind, they'll be drinking. They'll be like on their second glass of wine and they'll be like, whew, feeling warm. I'm gonna have a glass of water next. Why in the hell would you have a glass of water at that point in time? Like the fun is just starting. Like, why would you ruin a buzz? by Like, I just, I just, I just don't get that. Like, it makes no sense to me at all why a human being would do that yet non-alcoholic people you know 90 percent of the population that's what they do and i just i don't get why he would do that so he had he reached under the coffee table uh handed me a, a copy of the big book he had which is still my primary one that i have here uh gave me a, a list of meetings in fargo it was this was a sunday when i went there it was after nights. So there was no other meetings and just told me to go to a meeting the next day uh, it was the, yeah, five thirty, and that was it. Because he knew that because I was his kid, it would be hard to not possible for him to like. There was too much emotional connection from there. He needed the fellowship of the program of AA to help me and to get me uh, to get sober. So I went to my first meeting. Uh, they were doing their. It was an open speaker birthday meeting, so you didn't have to share. So I snuck in, sat in the back, and just listened to what they had to say. And the speaker, she shared about the feelings of not feeling up, of not measuring up, of having that hole inside of her. She shared about uh, what happens when she drinks. And what I've described so far, uh, what we talk about in AA is the root cause of alcoholism is a twofold disease it's the phenomenon of craving and the obsession of the mind you know the phenomenon of craving is what i talked about when i feel when i ingest booze and i physically need to have it i, I crave it my fingertips my fingertips will itch for booze like i need to have it uh, the other part is the obsession of the mind which you know Hey, I know I've seen so many people go back out after long-term sobriety that I know that even after 17 years, if I went back out, uh, my phenomenon of craving would kick in immediately and I would be off to the race. So what the program of recovery does is it gets rid of the obsession of the mind. It doesn't allow me to take that first drink. And that obsession, man, that and early sobriety, that stuck with me for a long time my first year year and a half i was still mentally itching for that first drink a lot of times like i just thought about it It was like god i want to drink i would love a booze i would love a double short jack coke right now like a budweiser would be great some shots tequila something would be amazing you know and how i got through that is i found a good home group i got a sponsor who took me through the 12 steps and I just, I kept going to meetings. I mean, in early, I think in my first year, year and a half of sobriety, I was averaging five to nine meetings a week, just because, you know, you have to relearn. I had to relearn how, to, how to live without booze. Like where do you go on a Friday if you're not drinking? Like, how do you hang out with people if you're not using alcohol? Like, how do you go shopping? grocery shopping because my first stop was always my apartment was by happy Harry's on 45th street. So it was like, I don't, I went there so often that the people working there, you'd start getting the, Hey, how's it going? Head nod when you came in because they saw me so often, you know? So it's like, how do I go shopping? Who do I hang out with? What do I do for fun? How do I relax? How do I play video games without having a drink next to me? Like how, like I just, I didn't know how to live without alcohol so i had to find something else to occupy my time and that was just going to a lot of meetings hanging out with other people who were trying to live life without booze and just stay sober one day at a time you know and i did that for that first year and a half i work i got a sponsor uh, if you're wondering a sponsor isn't there's a lot of misconceptions about sponsorship, where you think, "Oh, it's they're your boss, or they tell you what to do, or they lecture." And for me, how I understand sponsorship is just a closed-mouth friend, basically. is someone who can keep their mouth shut. You know, they have a little bit more experience working the steps than you. You know, they're usually kind of similar temperaments, similar life stories that can just kind of give you a side-by-side walk, you walk with you through recovery. They don't do it for you. They don't uh, drag you along. They stand beside you and walk with you through the really hard times and the trials of life. You know, and I did, I did all the 12 steps under sponsorship guidance. Uh, None of them, now that I've been through them multiple times, there's nothing to be afraid of in the steps that I've found. There's nothing that uh, freaks me out about them anymore. Um, and the best thing I can say is if you're worrying about them, don't, because they're, they're in order for a reason. Uh, you know, for example, so many people come in and they like look at the amend step and they freak out or they look at the inventory steps. and They go, oh, my God, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. If you're just with, meeting with your sponsor and you're only on step one or two, don't project into the future and freak out about four, or nine or ten or whatever, because you're not there yet. Uh, it's my experience that if you're just doing it under sponsorship guidance to the best of your ability it's not going to be perfect when you get to for example when you get to five or you get to nine the immense step if you've done the previous steps to the best of your ability you'll be okay you know and the god thing really spun me for a loop because when i came in i think kind of the only way to describe me is borderline militant atheist i think you know because One, how dare you insinuate that I need anything? Because don't you know who I am? Uh, And two, everything that you're trying to shove down my throat is complete BS, you know, my mom, when I was a kid, had me go to church and confirmation. Like she was like, looking back now, I see she was trying to instill things like morals and codes of ethics and decency and all that stuff in me. But that was just not how I'm wired. And the thing about AA and all 12-step programs really is their concept of whatever higher power is can be as broad, as broad, as encompassing as you can think of. You know, for example, uh, I have my sponsor, sponsor, who's also a really good friend of mine. He's been sober for 33 years or something. Awesome program. If you ask him what his conception of a higher power is, he'll tell you he that he is an atheist and believes the program is a practice uh, is a practice, it's an action, but he doesn't believe in a Western concept of a higher power. But then you go to the other end of the spectrum and a guy that I sponsor right now uh, spent a year and a half in seminary before he discerned out of it knows way more about the Catholic faith than most priests that I've talked with. And yet those two people can be part of the same program because the higher power aspect of when you're turning it over can literally be anything at all. As long as it's not you, you know, that's, and for me, I can speak from my experience. That's the hiccup is it's not me. I have to get it out of myself, you know, so I was living life on life's terms. You know, I sobered up here in Fargo. Uh, I moved to Grand Forks at about seven and a half years of sobriety. Uh, I moved up there because. Part of my, as I said, I can get addicted to anything. I was addicted, this is weird as shit, but I was addicted to basically hiding from the real world in college, essentially for a long time, Uh, moved up to Grand Forks for more schooling, uh, burned out of that after three more years, it was just living life, you know, and then uh, I hit my story i think is one that shows that no matter how long you've been sober life still happens and why that's important to understand is a lot of the times if you hear some speakers not all but sometimes when you hear speakers they give you this sort of canned speech and they got sober and at like two years they met her or him then they got a job at like three years and then they had the 2.5 kids and then they had the two stall garage then they had the house and then they get the white picket fence. And every time they walk out their front doors, it's just sunshines and rainbows and they're just free of everything. And it's blah, blah, blah. And I just want to puke when I hear that crap. because That's not life because when you sober up, the thing is, and the part that trips a lot of people up is life still happens when you're sober. Like good stuff will happen when you're sober. Bad stuff will happen when you're sober. And it, sobriety is about, facing those challenges and overcoming those obstacles and moving beyond them sober, which is a pain because when you go through those things, I don't know about you, but I feel a lot. And when I feel a lot, it takes a lot for me to get through those feelings sober. So, um, well, in December of 2020, you know, we had the pandemic uh my whole career I, I at that time i'd been working for a nonprofit in grand forks working with disabled adults uh, pandemic just nuked that whole thing because everyone stayed home especially disabled adults very you know at-risk population so they stayed at home so uh, on unemployment which for me was a mind trip uh, because growing up as i said in the world i grew up in it was a kind of world where no matter what you get your work done Like, that's just how it is. So, for me, all of a sudden, be on unemployment, have a career change, lose job, all that against my will threw me for a loop. Uh, So, then I went through all that change, found a different job in December of 2020. Uh, You know, uh, I'm a big animal lover. So, an old elderly cat that I'd adopted at six, eight, he was 18 when I adopted it, put him down in March of 2020. We have a timeline here. 21. Then in May of 2021, I was at my job just thinking, OK, things are going to settle down now. Got to get calmer. Uh, my phone rings and it says mom's cell, which is odd because my mom, you know, she's I kind of call her kind of a wannabe millennial with her texting, texting and her smartphone and stuff. So she texts me all the time, but rarely calls me during the day. So I knew she was calling me during the work day that something real was going on. So I picked it up and I'm like, hey mom, what's up? Your brother Jerry's dead. Uh, we just got a call from Denver that they found him. And he finally died. she uh, should give you a little background. Uh, my brother was 13 years older than me and why there was the age difference. He was from my dad's first marriage. Uh, he was the type of person that knew he was an alcoholic and kept drinking anyway. He was There's this sort of myth that exists out there that if alcoholics could just be strong-willed enough or stubborn enough or make up their mind enough or tough enough that they could somehow stay sober. And I'll tell you right now that my brother Jerry, if that was true, he would still be alive because he was the type of person where he blew his knee out one time And over the phone, we're like, you should go to the doctor. His response was, screw that. People were blowing knees out before doctors. I don't need a doctor. So he just pushed through it. Um, He was walking his bike through a park one time and four guys said, hey, give us your bike. Well, no one told him what to do. So they broke a skateboard over his head and he woke up in the hospital bleeding out of his ear. And the doctor's like, I don't know how you're alive, let alone up and around and walking. You know, blind in one eye. He was... You know he was a white guy blonde hair blue eyes but he got a job as a bouncer at a Mexican cowboy bar in Denver because it was fun because he was then legally able to beat people up because he was the bouncer. Like this was the type of person that he was and alcoholism killed him. You know um the best I mean <sighs> The great obsession, and what a lot of drunks try and do, is the one thing that I've seen alcoholics go back out is they somehow convince themselves that they can do it this time, that it'll be different this time, that they can control it this time. And my brother was one of those people. And um, I'm just going to read this little paragraph here that describes what the end result is of self-will and alcoholism, if you think you can control it yourself this was I'll just read this here this 52 year old male was homeless lived in his inoperable van that was parked in the corner of a dirt lot he was last known alive May 4th 2021 at 1700 hours at which time he was described as having alcohol withdrawal and was very shaky he was found unresponsive lying face down in the dirt lot on May 5th 2021 at six thirty-one hours His medical history include blindness in his right eye due to high pressure, and his social history included 20 plus years of alcohol abuse, occasional marijuana use, and remote methamphetamine use. Um, That is the circumstances of death from my brother's autopsy report, and uh, contributing factor was ethanol withdrawal. Basically, he was in the routine where he would be homeless, living in a dirt lot with his inoperable van, just getting drunk all the time. And then he would sober up by himself, spin dry alone to get into a facility somewhere for a few weeks to get a roof over his head, get some three meals a day, basically build up enough strength, then he would go back to it. That was his cycle. That's what he did. And finally, basically um, he was found face down. He had a massive heart attack um, because they found him in the dirt lot. That's the end result of alcoholism Uh, out that is probably where I would end up because we were very much alike in our temperament disposition and things like that. So I got through that then in September. So June, July, August. So four months later, I then made the decision to divorce my wife, uh, due to a whole lot of circumstances. So now, let's just put a nuke in my whole existence. everything is going to change now uh, where I everything changed and it was really it was a choice that I made but it was something that I had to make in response to a bunch of actions that were taken outside of my control uh, from September until January, I called my sponsor and my sponsor's sponsor sponsor who also my best friend every single day because if I didn't jump all into the program and recovery. Uh, I was going to drink. Like just when you have that much emotion, that much stuff going on, that much life going on, the emotions are so intense for me that I don't know how to react without either a strong drink in my hand or a strong program. Like I, that's just where I'm at. So I made it through that, through being super involved in the program, working with a whole bunch of other guys, work, into meetings uh my home group in grand forks met on tuesdays thursdays and sundays and i went every tuesday thursday and sunday and just got honest about what was going on you know here i was at 16 years of sobriety and there was a few times i went to a meeting and i just cried at a meeting because shit, i just needed to cry like there's just days where it's like i just need to go to a meeting puke on the table what's going on cry and the wonderful thing about the program is no one judged you or judged me around that table because they knew what I was going through and that it was fine. You know, life was going good. Uh, I went on, uh, uh, you know, because I'd been smart and because I'm partially a cheap ass, I was able to go on a great vacation in January that year because of living the program in my life. So I was like, okay, things will be calm. We'll get through this. Then in, March of 22. Yeah, so March of this year, a member of our home group, uh, who's kind of like the elder statesman of the group, he just hit his 50 year sobriety birthday, shot me a text and one day and goes, Hey, I don't know if you've heard. Uh, but Jason died. Jason was a guy that I sponsored. So I called up my buddy and was like, Hey, what the heck going on? Uh, and Apparently Jason. Jason had moved from Fargo. Fargo from Grand Forks. Um, he wasn't going to meetings. He wasn't doing anything. I was trying to at least throw out the lifeline every now and again through text. About two weeks before that, he'd stop responding. So best case scenario, I hope that he'd just been drinking. Uh, but finally, I guess his demons got the best of him, uh, and he killed himself because he just couldn't get honest with himself, you know? So that was a trip, and I was, and him, he's had this, his cycle was he'd be sober for a while, get drunk, and then go to treatment, say that he just needs to focus on his mental health, and that was it. Didn't work the steps, didn't work a program, didn't do anything, uh, and finally it got the better of him, you know? So I, I sort of lay out this cluster of like a 15-month time period to show that you can get through anything in sobriety. Uh, it'll happen at any stage in your sobriety. Life is still going to happen no matter what, like it's, it's going to happen, Uh, but you can get through it principled without hurting people working a program and in a way that allows it. So you don't have to cause any more damage in your life, you know, because uh, I did that through all of that and miracle made it through my divorce without having to make any huge amends to anyone, And then life changed through another curve, a fun curve ball this time, where an opportunity arose for me to get a job down here at F5 and working with Adam. I was like, all right, universe, that's what you want. Here we go. You know, so once again, made the move, made the change, you know, and this is uh, where I'm at. And the thing is about sobriety is if you screw up, it's okay. Uh, I've screwed up many times in sobriety. I've just, uh, when I was about a year and a half to two years sober, I was probably one of the orneriest, driest drunks you've ever met, where the only thing I was doing right was going to meetings. Everything else was a dumpster fire in my life, but I was still going to meetings. And as we like to say in AA is, uh, we don't shoot our wounded, you know, it doesn't matter how much you might have screwed up, how much you're hurting. If you've gone back out as 15 times and come back 16, uh, AA will still always be there and care for you and help help you through that stuff in your life. You know. Uh, but today, you know, I know that if I was to drink, part of the reason why I stay sometimes when I'm like in a dark moment is I don't know if my ego would allow me to come back. I really don't. I honestly don't. I know I have an infinite number of drunks in me. I mean, I'm an alcoholic drinking for me is like swimming for a fish. It's my natural state and condition recovery though is unnatural for me. So I don't know if I was to go back out, if I would be able to get over myself and walk back through those doors and humble myself and be like, yeah, I screwed up. Got to start over, you know? So whenever I'm working with someone who's sort of gone out, and come back in, Or if someone, you know, raises their hand at a meeting because they're in their first 30 days of sobriety or whatever, or if they had the courage to say that, you know, I went back out and screwed up. I always, one, try and make them feel welcome and two, listen to their stories because those are the people that help me so much because they remind me of what it is out there. You know, my scars of drinking have faded a little bit. They've healed a little bit. So it's really easy for my mind after so long to start saying, was it really that bad? Maybe, you know, 23, you were overreacting. I mean, come on, you're only 23, you know, like, uh, maybe it'll be different. This, all these just BS stories, you know, so hearing the people when they come back in helps me stay sober and helps me uh, stay where I'm at in my sobriety you know, so, uh, and today life is great. I have a sponsor. I got a home group. uh, I'm trying to work this thing one day at a time. uh, And overall the progress is three steps forward, two steps back where there are those back step days, but overall it is getting better. So um, yeah, so that's what I am. That's me. That's my story. And that's what all I got. So thank you.
0: My name's Adam Martin. I am the founder of FI Project. I'm a five-time felon and I know what it feels like to be released from jail or a treatment center or a detox or a homeless shelter into nothing. And so the idea was like, could we do a better job by providing services in an F5 fa- fashion, which was the function key on a keyboard, which was like refresh. So like every time we met someone, what would it look like if we treated them like none of that existed?
1: So F5 Project is a nonprofit organization. We help people who have uh, addiction issues, homelessness, mental health, and ultimately try and give them a chance to change.
0: I had seen some trends happening with peer support where people with like real lived experience, if they were going back to where they came from and they were helping people out of those situations. There's no better way to get over the stuff that happened to you in your past than to go and help people who are currently
1: experiencing it.